This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Kevin Ingram, Professor of History at St. Louis University in Madrid. And we're delighted to have Kevin on the program today to talk about his new book, Converso Nonconformism in Early Modern Spain. It's just been published by Palgrave 2018. Kevin, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, pleased to be on the show. Well, we're, we're delighted to have you. Before we start talking about your book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, um, I'm English. Uh, I went to. I did my PhD in the United States. It's in early. Um, the 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 degree was in European studies uh, with an emphasis on uh, on Spain. And um, before that, I went to Sussex Sussex University in England. Uh, I was, um, I did, a, uh, my, my degree has always been in history. My first degree was in, uh, the history of, um, in English and American history. And, um, at, uh, at California, I did, uh, my degree, as I said, in European study. Very good. And you've been working on Spanish history and especially golden age Spanish history for some time. Yes. Well, I, I originally, uh, when I went to do the PhD program, I was interested in looking at modern history. And my um, interest was probably uh, more towards the 20th century on the Franco period, the Spanish Civil War. Mm. When I left um, Sussex University, actually, I forgot to mention, but when, when I was at Sussex University, um, I, I um, started to write a book. Uh, on a member of the International Brigade, who just happened to be Winston Churchill's nephew, a man called Esmond Romilly, right. who uh, achieved fame later on. He, he, um, he eloped with one of the Mitford sisters. Right. They went off to <laughs> went off the United States. Another famous dynasty. Another famous dynasty, yeah. And so uh, I was interested in that. I'd, I'd spent some time in Spain, so I spoke Spanish. Uh, and uh, yeah, I wanted to go back to you. I'd spent some time outside of university. I wanted to go back and I thought that uh, that's what that would be my interest. That would be uh, the thing that, that most attracted me to Spanish history was the, the 20th century. But while I was um, going through uh, the, the program at, um, at San Diego, I, um, I, I got interested in uh, Golden Age Spain, uh, 16th century Spain. Um, 16th century merchants. It really started through looking at uh, merchant activity um, with the Indies, with the New World. Um, a lot of it was obviously based through uh, the port of Seville, which had pretty much a monopoly on this trade. 
And then uh, through reading around this, I kept noticing that these this uh, this thing, these conversos, these um, this group of people known as conversos or new Christians were involved in that trade. And they seem to be involved in general in the cultural life of that city. And as I discovered elsewhere. And so when I was um, when I got to the stage where I was looking for a dissertation topic, having sort of dis, uh, examined a number of um, avenues and then really discarded them. I, I went back to um, to these to the conversos and mm. uh, and, and very glad I did. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure all your readers will be glad you did. You've produced a book which is incredibly rich and incredibly atmospheric. Uh, the, the, the front cover itself gives a sense of the um, almost claustrophobia and, and um, danger and tension of the relationship and context that you describe. It's a big book, isn't it, Kevin? How many words is it? Too many to start with for Paul Grave because I noticed, yeah, he said, can you cut some of this out? And, you know, and I said, sure. And I never, I didn't ever get around to cutting out as many as I promised. But my editor, <laughs> for my editor there, I mean, she was very nice about this. And so in the end, she said, okay, well, won't have any problems with it. Uh, I don't know, about 140,000 words. Yeah, it feels big. It feels big. And I mean, it's incredibly well researched. The research base is extraordinary. I think something like one third of the page count is footnotes and bibliography, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a powerfully impressive piece of work. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, I'm not really a person who's... You know, well, the reason for that was that I saw this as a narrative and, and I didn't really want to get sidetracked. There was a lot of information I needed to cover there. And I thought, no, I want the reader to get involved with this story right, right. and follow it through. And I, do, I don't want these asides, very important ones, it felt. But I just, I, as I was writing them, I felt, no, no, I, it, I, I'm losing, the, I'm, I'm losing the, the dynamism. And so that's why there were so many uh, footnotes here. Hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's packed with great stuff uh, and well worth reading. And there's a lot of terms in the title that, that many historians of um, early modern religion might not be familiar with. And conversos is, is of course, uh, the key term that you explain um, so well and use so frequently through the book. Uh, the conversos are new Christians, as you explained, but by the 16th century, they've been Christian for some time, haven't they? Yes. Um, well, the converso, it's a phenomenon. Uh, the conversos, a converso in Spanish just means convert. Um, but at the start of the 15th century, uh, there were attacks on Jewish neighborhoods throughout Spain. And during these attacks, sometimes it's called a pogrom. Um, as a result of these attacks and in a period of perhaps a decade or so after them, with a lot of pressure on the, the Jewish neighborhoods, that probably we, we think round about a third or perhaps even more of Jew, the Jewish community, which was a very large one anyway in Spain, that that community, about a third or so, perhaps perhaps more, converted to Christianity. These converts were known as um, New Christians or conversos. Uh, converso meaning convert, but it wasn't just that it wasn't just the converts, but it was their descendants because um, old Christian society um, um, wished to, I, I think, sort of delineate between true Christians, true Spaniards, and this lesser type of Christian. And so they, they were really um, stigmatized as people who came from families who'd converted as well. And this created problems with them, not, not only in the first generation, but subsequently. So that's fascinating, Kevin. T tell us about the nature of these problems. What was the structure of Spanish society 
and in what way did it marginalise the conversos? Yeah, well, uh, what happened to start with was that uh, you have a converso community, most of whom uh, have um, entered Christianity. They've been through force. And so there was always a suspicion on, on the part of the old Christian society that they weren't sincere Christians. So that, um, they, the, the conversos stayed in their neighborhoods, the, the Jewish neighborhoods, or, um, or in neighborhoods um, close by. They maintained very often the first generation uh, uh, ties with, um, with, with the Jewish uh, community as well. So they were suspect. So that was one reason why they sort of that they, they 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 weren't really able to, um, I suppose, um, assimilate. Uh, but the 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 major the other major problem, and perhaps even more of a problem for them, was that um, Jews anyway were an urban group of people. Um, they were involved in finance. They were involved in in um, as merchants in, in economic activities. Uh, they were um, uh, intellectuals very often. Um, most Jewish men would be literate because they would have to, they, they, they needed to be literate to read the Torah, which was sort of commanded of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, as a result of this, as far as the Jews were concerned, they didn't have opportunities to enter into society as Jews. Mm -hmm. But now the conversos, as um, ostensibly as Christians, they could enter into all parts of that society. And they tended to do very well. In an urban environment, um, they did very well as merchants. They entered into local bureaucracies. They entered into the church and they became very visible. Some of them became very wealthy indeed, uh, married into the nobility. And they were doing something that the old Christian society never um, expected of them. They expected them to be more modest, I imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, and what they found was that there was uh, a community that was uh, prospering. Uh, doing very well and politically doing very well as well. And I, there was a certain amount of envy in this, clearly, especially um, among the lower orders of society that was, um, you know, meeting them on a day to day basis. Hmm. So so um, this led to a spate of uh, attacks on the conversos in, in some of the large urban areas in Spain. Um, um, culminating in 1449 in Toledo. Uh, with an attack on the, the conversal community, not the Jewish community, interestingly enough, um, which had been attacked um, in the period beforehand, but on the conversal community, um, which uh, resulted in a statute, a pure blood statute. Mm. Um, this was called the Sentencia Estatuto. And uh, under, the, um, under the statute, uh, no conversos were allowed into um, the local bureaucracy, into the church, uh, in other words, into those areas of society that were seen as the areas that should have been occupied by by the nobility, by people of some worth. Um, they couldn't uh, enter those because um, it was seen really, I mean, although it wasn't presented in these terms, but congenitally they came from a background um, that couldn't be trusted in those positions. Mm. Uh, and um, this was condemned by the papacy, but nevertheless it led to other um, uh, limpieza de sangre, they were called pure blood acts throughout Spain over the next 150, 200 years, um, marginalizing or attempting to marginalize um, uh, the converso community. And that's where really that's where my book starts. It's as a result, what happens as a result of this attempt to marginalize uh, this, this um, 
quite prosperous, uh, quite intellectual group um, in society. One of the things I learned from your book is that the Converso community has been or has had a very um, contingent relationship with Spanish historical scholarship as well. You mentioned Franco earlier on in our conversation. How, How have the Conversos been understood in Spanish historiography? Well, to start with, I think um, there were there were, there was there's a certain of interest. The they were sort of ignored. It was um, up until the 20th century, more or less. Uh, it was felt that the conversos that at the end of the 15th century, with the expulsion of the Jews, those Jews that weren't expelled in 1492. Uh, they, uh, those that converted instead of um, leaving the country, that they were sort of assimilated, that they really just sort of went into sort of the cultural backwards, if you like, and they really didn't have any kind of cultural um, influence on Spain whatsoever. The great golden age in Spain in the 16th and 17th century, that was driven by old Christians. And it, I think it was, it was seen generally that having the country having ridden itself of its um, alien minorities like the Jews and the Muslims at the end of the 15th century, they went on to this great golden age led by um, good Christians. Uh, Then in the early 20th century, uh, Jewish scholars started to look at conversos, but as um, Judaizers or crypto-Jews, those who resisted the Inquisition. Um, This was obviously um, Jews wanted to show that, in fact, um, that uh, this community was a resisting community. Um, they were called Anusim. They were the, the forced ones, and they or they maintained their Jewish beliefs under uh, you know, under duress. Um, so that a lot of the a lot of the scholarship um, during in the early 20th century was from uh, Jewish scholars on uh, that's a scholarship on the conversos that were looking into them as crypto Jews and their relationship with the Inquisition. Uh, it was probably only after uh, a, a Spanish historian, uh, an emigre historian from the Franco regime, uh, Américo Castro, he brought out a book in 1948 called España en su historia, Spain in its history. And in that, he talked about the importance of the Jews to intellectual life in Spain in the Middle Ages and how this role was taken on by the conversos in the 16th and 17th century. Um, indeed, he, he noted that uh, probably the, you know, the greatest scholars in Spain actually came from uh, Jewish backgrounds. Uh, this was this was in the Franco period. And of course, um, Franco, uh, Franco saw himself as creating the Franco regime saw themselves as creating a new 16th century, um, you know, Catholic society through having um, got rid of an alien presence, not the Jews or the Muslims this time, but the, the left, right, the Republic or the left. And yeah. so they were looking to the they had their own concept of 16th century or the Golden Age. And so obviously, Americo Castro's views didn't go down very well. But he was really the start of looking at the conversos as a major influence on, on um, Spanish society. Um, uh, other than, you know, other than just being um, uh, Judaizers. Fascinating. Well, what kinds of nonconformism or what kinds of resistance did the conversos participate in? Well, the conversos, uh, what happened uh, as a result of Limpieza de Sangre was that the conversos were in a difficult position. Um, 
they were they were Christians, but Limpiata de Sangre for, um, prohibited them very often from entering the religious orders, mm-hmm. uh, entering into um, government positions, uh, entering the universities, entering becoming a noble, entering into the um, the the, the noble orders as well. And so they had to very often disguise their background. Very often, of course, they lied about their background to enter into society. Mm. Uh, this is one of the reasons why that scholarship has been quite slow to see their influence, because they themselves presented themselves as old Christians very often and had elaborate, <laughs> elaborate genealogies uh, proving that. And so um, Spanish scholars and others have going have gone back to hagiographies or early biographies, and they've seen that the biographer has stated that this or that um, great member of the uh, you know this this Spanish humanist or mystic uh, came from an old Christian background, and they've accepted that rather than digging a little bit further and finding from their their contacts and their their biographies and just looking into their works themselves that there's something which which uh, Castro himself. Was um, you know was very sensitive to that, that um, there's an antagonism there uh, that that's, um, that there's a lot going on there that, um, and you know in in a subtextual way in their works oh. and so yeah so this is what was so this is this is what was and what were they doing well um, as I present in my book that they were what they were doing was they were trying to create a society uh, in which they would belong. Um, and uh, so they were looking at they were trying to uh, present a society that was based on merit rather than blood, that people could gain nobility and have a position in society through merit. They were going back to this is why they were interested, I think, in, in, in the humanists mm-hmm. and in changing, especially Christian humanism and Erasmianism, mm-hmm. changing uh, the, the, the looking, going back to the early precepts of the church to make it. Uh, an organization that was interested not in a lot of rituals or dogma, but looking at some, the basic ethics of early Christianity, in which, of course, the Jews themselves were, were present. In fact, they were, you know, they, they, it was a Jewish organization to start with. Sure. And so these, these are some of the, this is what they get into. So they, they become, they, they really look into um, private um, spirituality, which puts them at the vanguard of the mystics, the great mystics of the 16th century. They go back. They're very interested in humanism. I think the humanist movement is really represented by um, converso scholars in Spain um, looking at um, some basic basic uh, ethics, um, looking at uh, presenting, especially Christ- Christian humanism, the, light, um, the views of Erasmus, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, this is what their this is what their views were. I was fascinated by the passages in your book where you describe the mysticism and millennialism and other kinds of prophetic interests of some of the conversos that you're interested in. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, the conversos were interested in uh, mysticism. They were interested sort of, con- as, as I see it, well, it's not just me. I, I, I'm actually seem to be presenting myself as a person who's introducing a lot of these ideas. A lot of the ideas have been, in, uh, have been introduced before. They just haven't been readily accepted. Right. Uh, but um, a lot of the, the mystics, uh, early mystics in the Franciscan movement in Spain, um, were conversos. Mm. Uh, I mentioned several of them in the book. Uh, but there, were also, there was also a kind of homegrown mystical movement called the Alumbrados, this Illuminist group as well, which seems to have been completely a converso phenomenon. 
And what they were interested in, in the Alambrados, for instance, they were interested basically in in having contact with God outside the church. This was an interesting thing for them because, you know, the church represented kind of a, a, an enemy to them. Mm. The church didn't want them. You couldn't, you know, conversos, intelligent conversos couldn't enter the higher echelons of the church anyway. And so this was a private communication with the deity um, based on love. You know, the, 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 the love of God in man is is God, they, they stated mm-hmm. very often. They had a term for this that they could, they didn't need any, they didn't need any prior, um, uh, um, they didn't need any prior uh, 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 training to, like the, in the Franciscans, to communicate with God. It could happen any time at all. It was called dejamiento, mm-hmm. this practice. The, the Franciscan organization called it recogimiento, and that was um, collecting, collecting the uh, uh, God's um, spirit. They called it dejamiento, which meant um, leaving yourself open to, to God's spirit. And, and it was much more relaxed than the, the Franciscan um, views on, on mysticism. Uh, and it could happen any time. And they got into a lot of trouble with this. It was outside the church. And naturally, um, the, the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition didn't understand what was going on, but what they did feel that it, it that it was heretical. Hmm. Well, uh, yes. Well, one of the very interesting passages in the book uh, is the passage in which you describe the career of St. John of Avila and his his, his, his emerging and declining connections with the, the new Jesuit order. Could, could you talk us through that and its relationship to your book's title? Yeah, well, uh, uh, Juan de Avila, or, or John of Avila, is, a, is, um, is an example of what I was talking about as a, a, a man um, who is um, who's interested in, uh, in, in Erasmus, in Christian humanism, uh, he is formed at the University of Alcalá de Henares, which was a humanist university that was created at the beginning of the 16th century. He's a converso, mm-hmm. and he has a mission. He goes to, he takes his views um, to converso communities uh, in the south of Spain, in Andalusia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's clear, to me at least, that what he's doing, he's actually, uh, he's targeting converso communities, many of whom were still Judaizing. Others were were lost, and he's targeting this community as kind of, my sense is, to be a vanguard of this reformed Christianity, this new Christianity that uh, many humanists were talking about, um, this new society that was based on the basic precepts of Christ. And um, he's... Uh, he forms an organization in the South, a number of colleges, a university, uh, this, this, this organization, which uh, his message is pitched primarily um, to conversos to start with, but obviously not just to conversos. Uh, it's a message that, that, um, that Ignatius of Loyola is also projecting in his early, in the early Jesuit movement. And for this reason, um, the two movements, um, are, uh, coincide in many ways. Uh, and the Jesuits themselves, of course, are interested in, uh, promoting these new ideas through colleges, not, not through creating monasteries, but creating schools or colleges. And that's, that's, um, that's one, that's John of Avila's view on this as well. That there are hints in your book that he takes up Protestant positions. 
Well, it takes up, uh, I would say, a Christian humanist positions, but Christian humanists uh, perhaps weren't as brave as Luther to, to mm. talk about. Many of the Christian humanists, I think probably even Erasmus, um, believes believe that really that that um, that uh, their religion Christianity should be based on faith primarily on faith and and that works weren't so important in other words that you should, you gained God's grace through believing in that Christ was your savior mm-hmm. and you didn't have to perform very, anything uh, much more than that you just had to believe in that in your heart. Um, this is was seen as Protestant, but I think that it was, you know, that we, we see it um, throughout a Christian humanist movement in Spain. And do, um, it, do any of these conversos move into Lutheran or Calvinist religion? Uh, yes, um, certainly uh, by the middle of the 16th century, um, the, there are two major cells of um, Protestants that are discovered in the, the city of Valladolid and of Seville, and they're prosecuted. Uh, many of them are burnt at the stake as a result of this. My views on this, once again, is that the movement, um, this is being spread from humanists who come out of um, uh, Alcalá de Henares University. Uh, they, they travel south. They become important members and preachers in Seville, and they are themselves conversos. The movement itself, I believe, is a largely converso movement. Mm. Um, and uh, yes, they're, they're, they're um, conventicles, um, clandestine uh, uh, groups that read uh, Calvinist literature that comes into the port, Calvinist and pro- some Protestant literature. But I would say that mostly it's difficult to pin them down. They are certainly, they're looking, they're reformed Catholics, they're looking to reform their religion, and they're interested in um, so the views that are coming in uh, from from a Calvinist Europe. Uh, whether you could say that they're Calvinists or not, I don't think that they they think enough about it to be Calvinist. In fact, some of the Calvinists who actually some of these uh, reformers who managed to escape before bur- being burnt at the stake and they find themselves in Calvinist Europe, they tend to be at odds with a lot of the Calvinist ideas. They're clearly um, heterodox, but whether you could call them Calvinist or not. Fascinating, fascinating. What, what, one of the most important chapters for me was chapter six in the visual arts, Diego Velazquez, who, of course, uh, has a painting which adorns the cover of your book, a beautiful cover. And, in what ways was conversal identity encoded in visual texts in this period? Yeah, um, well, in visual text, this is a very difficult one, you know, without, without sort of, you know, so, yeah, you know, you, you can you can look at uh, visual texts and uh, you can uh, read lots of things into them so you have to be very careful what i do with diego velazquez is i um i look at his work um against the background of what was going on uh, politically in the court of philip the fourth um velazquez himself was a young court painter and he entered into a court that ha- that was where there was a tremendous tension and the tension was between um the Madrid society, the court society, and um, 
a large group of converso merchants that had been attracted from Portugal because they were financiers and they were fairly cheap. They, they, they lent money uh, at rates that were, um, were slightly better, well, often uh, much better rates than uh, the Genoese or the, the, or the Germans uh, financiers. But as a result of, of going to court and lending money, um, they wanted to be, they wanted uh, to know that they, the Inquisition would not be prosecuting them hmm. because very often the Inquisition would be prosecuting these people from the, for the sins of their, their, their uh, fathers. Their fathers. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but um, they were attacked. People believed that they were um, that they were crypto Jews. Uh, they believed that um, the the Prime Minister of Spain, the First Minister, uh, the Count Duke of Olivares, was in cahoots with them. And this this created enormous amount of tension. And this this um, really is the topic of conversation uh, during those first years that Velazquez was at court. What was interesting that Velazquez, I thought, I, I, I believe, um, was very sensitive to this because he himself, um, I believe, came from a converso background. I discovered a few years ago that, in fact, he lied about his family to get into the noble order of Santiago, that they weren't landowners, that they were silk merchants um, in, mm. in, in, in um, Seville, which was an activity that was generally considered as a, as, a, as a converso monopoly. So I believe he himself was from a, a converso family. And we see um, his sensitivity and the regime's sensitivity to the, the problems that they're having um, on the conversos and um, on the, this continuing um, interest in, in maintaining Limpieta de Sangre or pure blood statutes um, at the court, in society in general. And we see an attack on... So in the book, I look at several of... Um, Velázquez's uh, early paintings and a couple of his later ones um, in which um, this antagonism is seen, that he's really making a statement against um, Limpieta de Sangre, against this, um, this attacks on this minority and on prejudice in general in his, in his society. Mm. And of course, what your book does is to frame its discussion around his experience. Uh, the introduction begins with him painting a cross in his doublet and it ends with that magnificent chapter in chapter six, that, that long and, and, and rich chapter uh, that, that considers his background and career. Uh, you've written an enormously impressive book, Kevin. What kind of impact do you hope it will make in the field? Well, I hope it'll be uh, read. Um, I imagine that it that, that um, it will be debated. I imagine it will have its um, its proponents and opponents. Uh, and um, what I'm interested in is that uh, a debate, which I think um, it's, uh, that um, it, after a generation of scholars that were sort of seen as part of the um, Americo Castro circle. Great scholars like uh, Marquez, uh, uh, Francisco Marquez de Villanueva, um, really excellent scholars. They've, they've now also died. And I think with it, with, with this, this, this whole debate about the importance of the conversos in a Christian society in, in, 
early modern Spanish culture seems to have gone into a lull. And what I would like to do once again, I really like to reintroduce this debate. I think it's so important. In fact, I say it's central to the culture of early modern Spain. And so that's basically what I'm hoping will happen, that people will start talking about it again and we'll get um, some people to respond to my work and um, you know, hopefully write their own works. And there's a lot of scholarship yet to be done on this. Well, I, I, I'm sure it's going to make an impact. It's a, it's a really formidable piece of work. Kevin, we've taken up a lot of your time today, um, and we really appreciate that. But before we wind up uh, the conversation, could you tell us briefly what you're working on next? Yes. Uh, well, interestingly enough, I'm working on a biography of Velázquez, uh, Diego Velázquez, the painter. Um, uh, it's going to be, I don't know, provisional title, um, the Secret Art and Times of Diego Velázquez. And what I really want to do is I want to approach uh, another Spain, one that's not readily available in the general histories, through looking at his background and through that, um, looking at the society, of the, the Counter-Reformation Society in Spain and some of the, um, some of the uh, cultural undercurrents that don't always get to the surface. And I'm, I'd like to use Velázquez uh, both during for his time in Seville to talk about uh, the uh, heterodox movements in Seville at court as well and his time in Italy to talk about this kind this counter-reformation society and its impact on him. That's my that's that's the idea anyway. Well, that sounds fantastic. I look forward to seeing it. Um, yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for your time, Kevin. Really appreciate you coming on to the show today to talk about your new book, Converso Nonconformism in Early Modern Spain, just published by Palgrave, 2018. Thank you for your time and take care. Thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.